I'm going to ask you to stand once again while we read Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 25. Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what, for uh, what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Loving Father, as we look into this passage this morning, the first part of it, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand what it means to be sons, children of the Most High God. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And Lord, that you would cause us to embrace the reality that in order to share in that inheritance, we must also suffer together with our Master. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine for a minute that you're uh, a slave in the household of a tyrannical king. You have nothing. You have no possessions. You have no rights. You have no honor. The only thing you have is the, the certainty that you will always be a slave in the household of that tyrannical king. But one day, a prince the only son of a benevolent benevolent king in a nearby kingdom, pays the price to buy you out of slavery. And he he escorts you out of the household of that king and and he, he tells you that your freedom is a free gift. That would be a pretty good day if you're that slave. But then what if that same prince told you that his father had declared that you were to be adopted as a son of the king and that you were to have a share in the inheritance that belonged to to that king's own son? That would be even an even better day. (laughs) But what if then the prince explained that His father's kingdom was presently in a long-standing war against the very evil kingdom in which you had previously been enslaved. And he told you that before you could lay hold of this amazing inheritance that belonged to you as an adopted son of of the good king, you would have to fight in battle long and hard. He guaranteed his protection... He guaranteed that he would fight alongside you. And he also guaranteed that he knew the outcome of the war and that victory was certain. 
But before you could lay hold of your inheritance, you would have to fight long and suffer great hardship. Would you still consider your newfound freedom to be a blessing? Or would you consider it a curse? In the passage that we're looking at today, Paul tells us that we who have been bought out of slavery to sin have been made adopted sons of God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But he also tells us that the path to laying hold of our inheritance is a path of suffering. And before the verses that we're looking at today, Paul told us that we are under obligation, not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. We are not to live according to the flesh, but to live according to the Spirit, and indeed to put the deeds of the body to death. And he said, thereby you will live. Now he's moving back, as he has often done in these first chapters of the book of Romans, to what is true of us as the redeemed of God, as the basis for that exhortation, for that uh, that understanding that we are to put to death the deeds of the body. Here's where we're going this morning. We're just going to do the first four verses of this passage. And verse 14 tells us, we'll, we'll see that the Spirit of God uh, marks us out as the sons of God. Then we'll see in verse 15 that the Spirit's presence dwelling within us moves us from the realm of slavery to the realm of adoption as sons of God. And we'll talk a fair amount about that issue of adoption. Then we'll see in verses 16 and 17 that the Holy Spirit within us bears witness together with our spirit that we are indeed sons of God and heirs of God. And finally in verse 17 at the end we'll see that this that this Witness of the Spirit that we are sons and heirs means that we will surely share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. First, the Spirit's leading marks us as sons of God. The last time we saw that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a, is a certainty for every believer. We saw that based on uh, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 that when you hear the message of gospel, uh, of the gospel, And you believe that message, you are sealed by God by the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And we also saw that that sealing is until the day that we stand in the presence of God. It's until the day of final redemption. So nothing can take that away from us. In Romans 8 verse 14... Paul says, all who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. The first thing to note is that the Spirit's leading is uh, its inevitable. It is a certainty for everyone who belongs to Christ, everyone who's identified as a son of God. Uh, when, when God justified us and reconciled us, he didn't leave us to our own devices. He gave us the indwelling of His Holy Spirit to lead us during our sojourn this side of heaven. Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 says, It is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And of course, it is in the person of the Holy Spirit that God has come to dwell within us. Now, some see this idea of of the leading of the Spirit as sort of a strong-arm approach, that the Holy Spirit takes control of us, and he, he, in effect, forces us to behave in a sanctified manner. But I have trouble reconciling that, that idea entirely with, uh, with the multitude of exhortations and rebukes that we find in the New Testament directed toward those who were called children of God. Uh, and I have trouble reconciling it with the pattern that we've already seen in Romans, because what does Paul do before he ever exhorts in this book? For five and a half chapters, he first lays out what we deserve, which is hell, 
And then he lays out what we have been given, which is justification, reconciliation, identification with Christ in in the likeness of his death and resurrection so that we are raised to newness of life. And then, in chapter 6, verse 11, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. He always bases the movement toward Christ-likeness on that which God has already done, on that which is already true. In Romans 2, verse 4, he says, he uses the same word, lead. He says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? In John chapter 14, John speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. He says, I will ask the Father, Jesus says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1 is a down payment of the rest of our inheritance, right? But he's not a down payment in some sort of detached theological way. (laughs) He is our helper until the day that we stand in the presence of God. And his leading is guaranteed to every believer. A little later in John 14, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while I was abiding with you, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. We said in both of the last couple of times we were together that the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer should not be separated from the Word of God. And I believe that's what we see going on here. He will... Teach you all things and bring to your remembrance what I said to you. The same Holy Spirit who wrote the word of God through the prophets and apostles is dwelling within us to bring the word of God to bear in our lives. And I believe that is the fundamental way in which the Spirit leads. I believe that also drives us back to Scripture on a constant, uh, continual basis. Verse 14, again, Romans 8, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. This is the very first time in this, uh, in this great epistle that Paul actually mentions our sonship. He's had a lot to say already about the sonship of Jesus Christ to God the Father. But now he's, he's turning to kind of a different angle, and he's talking about our sonship. In verse 15, he explains that the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of every believer moves us out of the realm of slavery and fear and into the realm of adoption as sons. He says, You have not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, as I see it, the fear from which we have been freed is not the fear of God. The fear of God is a a continual part of the experience of every believer in Jesus Christ. Because God is and will always be the only one who can truly bless or truly curse. God is the only one who really can do us either harm or good. And if you look back in Isaiah and Jeremiah when they're mocking the idolaters, it is over that distinction that that mockery comes. They're worshiping those who can do neither harm nor good. We worship and fear the God who is the source of all good and of all curse. Um, And we have been graciously placed into the realm of his blessing. 
We are freed from slavery to the curse and the power of sin and death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Jesus partook of the same flesh that, that we possess in order that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Christ has set us free from the curse of death and from slavery to the fear of, uh, that's associated with that curse. And he's given us instead the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, let's talk about adoption. Adoption is a very familiar concept to us. Uh, I think there are many families in this body who have adopted children, including our family, my family. Uh, we're accustomed to seeing the official ceremony of adoption occur not too long after a child is brought into the home of the adoptive parents. Debbie and I still vividly remember the day when we went to court with big smiles on our faces and we stood before a judge and that judge declared that Jessica was our daughter. And now, of course, from our perspective, she had been our daughter since the moment that she came with us into our home, which was very shortly after her birth. But that official proceeding, that public declaration uh, that, that by which a judge declared that she was our child just as if she had been born to us, that was a very important day uh, in the life of our family. And by the laws of the state of Texas, once that declaration is made, you can't undo it. Well, there's something very interesting going on in Romans 8 that most commentaries don't address. Something that sets Paul's statements in this passage apart from our traditional understanding of adoption. Adoption was a fairly common practice in the Roman Empire as it is today. But Paul is adding an element here that doesn't quite fit with the Roman conception or with our modern conception. Because in Romans 8.15, he says of every believer that you have already received the spirit of adoption as sons. But then in verse 23, which we'll look at a lot more next time, he says that we groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. So there's some sense in which our adoption is not yet complete. There's some sense in which we're looking forward. And I believe that the reason it's not yet complete is because we will not fully realize what it means to be sons of God until the day we receive our inheritance from God. Sonship is inextricably tied to heirship, to inheritance. And this is a very Old Testament concept, so you're going to have to bear with me. (laughs) In many commentaries, it's pointed out in this section of Romans that adoption doesn't, the word adoption doesn't occur in the Old Testament. It's also pointed out that the Jews did not practice adoption as we know it. But there is one context in the Old Testament in which adoption plays very, very prominently. And that context is the covenant that God made with King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God was laying out the promises of the Davidic covenant, he told David he was going to make him a king and he was going to give him a perpetual kingdom. And he told him that, that his descendants would rule on his throne and that that reign would be an eternal kingdom. He would give him a house, a kingdom, and a throne. And then he said to him in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 7, regarding David's seed, David's descendant, he said, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And we know that that promise applied not just to the last king in the line of David, but to the kings in between because of what he says in verses 14 and 15. He says, when he sins, I'll correct him. 
with the rods of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But he says, my loving kindness will not depart from him the way it departed from Saul. This was, in effect, a promise of adoption. It was God saying to David that his descendants, who served as king over over this kingdom that God was instituting, would be sons of God. But all of these promises looked forward to that last king in the line, the perfect son of David, who is also the perfect son of God. And his name is Jesus Christ. And there's an amazing psalm, Psalm 2, which speaks of the coronation day of that king. That psalm begins with, uh, and it's written by David, by the way, according to Acts chapter 4. But that psalm begins with, uh, with David describing the nations being in an uproar. And they're, they're seeking to cast off the fetters, the constraints of the true God. And they're, they're saying, let us tear their fetters apart, the fetters, the, the constraints of God and of God's Messiah, God's anointed. And then it says that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So they're seeking the nation. The kings of the nations are seeking to cast off God and to cast off the dominion of his Messiah. And God is laughing at them. And it says then God will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And then look at this in verses 6 through 8. First, God the Father is speaking, and He says, As for me, I have installed my King upon Zion, my holy mountain. And He's talking about the one He just called my anointed, my Mashiach, my Messiah. I will install my King upon my holy mountain. That's the language of coronation, the crowning or installation of a King. And then in the very next verse, the dialogue turns from the Father to the, the Son, to the Messiah. And the Son says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, Thou art my Son today, I have begotten thee. And that's a surprising statement that we'll talk about more. But that is the language of adoption. And then the, the dialogue turns once again back to the Father. And the Father is now speaking to His Son, King. And He says, Ask of Me, and I will surely give the nations as Thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as Thy possession. And that is the language of heirship, inheritance. Coronation, adoption, heirship. All three of these ideas are brought together in this one exchange between the Father, Yahweh, and His anointed King, Messiah. It's important to note here that it is on the day of Messiah's coronation as King that God decrees, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten Thee. That's not what we would expect. We would expect the terms, Today I have begotten Thee, to, to be spoken at the time that the son king was born, right? But that's because we misunderstand the words. Micah Micah 5 verse 2 said that uh, this Messiah, that his goings forth have been from the days of eternity. He's always existed. John 1, 1 through 3 tells us that this Messiah, the one who's called the word of God, existed from eternity past. He was in the beginning with God. And he was God. And all things that we see that have come into being came into being through him, by him. So what's going on with this declaration, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, on coronation day? Well, that was the day when the king fully entered into the blessings of sonship. When the son inherited his father's kingdom in all respects, his crown, his authority, his honor, and all the lands and peoples of his dominion. 
The one that God calls His Messiah, the preeminent Son of David, and ultimately the the true Son of God, is the one who perfectly fulfills what this psalm prophesied. And that person, of course, is Christ. So what's the point of going back and looking at that passage? It's to point out that the formal adoption decree, the declaration of sonship for the one who is a son and an heir of God, happens when the child fully lays hold of his inheritance. When all that belongs to the father is handed over to the son. And this has very important implications for us who are declared by God to be sons and heirs. Even though Romans 8 verses 16 and 17 says that we are already sons and heirs of God, our formal adoption day, the declaration, the public declaration of our sonship, in which the day in which we lay hold of the inheritance that has been granted to us as a joint heir with Christ, that day is yet future. We who have already received the first fruits of the Spirit and are already the children of God, nonetheless groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. So as we've seen many times in Paul's writings, in this, especially in this book, there's an already and a not yet aspect to what he's saying. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit makes us children of God even now, today. But we're looking forward to something that's yet to come. Now this all fits perfectly with what we saw in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. Where God said, once you heard the message and once you believed the message, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And he said that that sealing of the Spirit is a down payment. It's the first installment of your inheritance. And the rest is yet to come. So when is Adoption Day? When is the day that we fully lay hold of the inheritance that belongs to us as sons of God, which we are right now? Well, the answer to that question is, is, is raised by looking first at when, when was the coronation day of Messiah? When was the day in which Messiah laid hold of his inheritance? Because we follow in his steps. And Paul answered that question early in this book. He said that the gospel to which he was called, the gospel he was to bring to the Gentiles, was the message of truth concerning God's Son, who was born of a descendant of David, there's the covenant, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The day when God the Father proved mightily to all of creation that Jesus is the Christ, the perfect Son of David, and God's own beloved Son, was the day when He raised Him from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the day when God will formally and finally and fully declare with power that we who are in Christ are His sons and heirs will be the day that He raises us from the dead and presents us spotless and blameless in His presence forever. We'll talk a lot more about that day next time. But I wanted to make those connections because those connections excite me. (laughs) And I think that when we look forward to that formal decree of our adoption on the day of our resurrection, it gives us hope. It gives us great hope. And it lets us know (laughs) that we're not alone today and that we have a great deal to look forward to. We cry out as sons, we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic. It's uh, the language that was spoken by Jesus and by the disciples. And the term Abba has been kind of hotly debated. What exactly is it? Some have said it's like baby talk for daddy. Uh, 
I'm not exactly sure, but here's what I think is pretty common. To, it's a common thread in all the different understandings of this term. It is not something that you would say about somebody else's father. It's something you would say to your father. It is familiar. That means that it is based on a personal, intimate relationship. And it is respectful. Jesus used this exact wording when he spoke to his father in Mark chapter 14. And that context is the most serious and sober context that you'll find anywhere in Scripture because that context was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Christ was crucified in our place. I'm going to come back to that passage at the end of this message. But for now, suffice it to say that we who have been made sons of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit now address God as Father exactly as Jesus Christ addresses God as Father. As with everything that is true of us in Christ, it is true of us because it is first true of Christ. And we are found to be in Him. If you don't understand anything else from the Pauline epistles than the concept of being in Christ, you will have gained a great deal. Because that is a very, very powerful idea. All that we have, we have because we are, because it was true of Christ first and we are in Him. In His high priestly prayer that was mentioned this morning in the worship, in John 17, just before He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked His Father to grant to us true unity with one another and with Him, just as He had enjoyed from eternity past with His Father. And he said the outcome of that unity that the world would see in us would be that the world would know that God had sent him and would know that God loves us even as he loves Jesus Christ. 1 John 3 verse 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God children of God. The Spirit's witness declares us to be sons of God, verses 16 and 17. In verse 16, Paul says, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now that, that word testifies with or bears witness with is a very interesting word. It's a it's a con, uh, contraction of two words, the word together with and the word bear witness. What Paul appears to be saying is that the Holy that there, there are two witnesses to our sonship. There's the witness of our spirit, our inner man, and there's the witness of the of the Holy Spirit who is in us. Uh, a corroborative witness, if you will. Now, that doesn't mean the two witnesses are equal. <laughs> There's no way that, that our witness holds a candle to the witness of the Holy Spirit. But I believe the, the idea here is that the Holy not that the Holy Spirit just bears witness to us, but the Holy Spirit bears witness with us to that which is true of us, that we are sons of God. Uh, I also believe that he bears witness to others that we are sons of God. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about how he bears that witness, <laughs> but Paul doesn't actually go there in this passage, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on that. But what I will say is a great passage to get informed on that issue of how the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God is 1 John. And especially 1 John chapters 3 and 4, and I'll leave it to you to look at those, but very briefly I'll say... I believe that those chapters in 1 John demonstrate, they, they tell us that the Spirit's demonstration of our identity as sons of God is twofold. First, it is through our confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God who has come in the flesh. And secondly, it is through the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
It's through our declared faith in Christ and through our love for the brethren that the Holy Spirit witnesses with us that we are sons of God and daughters of God. But verses 16 and 17 of Romans 8 are not presented as a test of sonship. They are presented as an affirmation of sonship. They are written to those whom Paul has already declared to be justified and reconciled to God. Already set free from the law of sin and death through the infinitely superior law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Paul's focus in these verses is on the that rather than on the how. The Spirit bears witness together with us, with the Spirit of every believer, that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that's where he goes next. Now, I want to point out that Paul's choice of wording here in uh, Romans 17 when he says, if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, makes it very, very clear that you can't have heirship without sonship. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer, but there's actually quite a bit of debate recently about whether you can, for instance, translate the Bible without using the term son. Uh, and I have to say that based on what I find in this passage and in many others, heirship, the royal aspect of sonship, depends on sonship itself. You can't have one without the other. At the same time, I think we tend to miss, in our as we're talking about sonship, we tend to miss the importance of the ideas of representation and inheritance when we're talking about our sonship to God. So I want to just briefly talk about that. As the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, Christ is the heir of all that belongs to God the Father, and He is the perfect representative of the Father in all that He does. Hebrews says He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Colossians says in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Christ represents the Father. He said over and over in in the Gospel of John, "I, I will say nothing and I will do nothing except that which the Father has given me to say and to do. And beloved, that's exactly what you and I are called to as sons and heirs of God. To be representatives of our Father. By the way, God declared that representation way back in Genesis chapter 1, right? But being the creation of God didn't quite cut it. We have to be sons of God. We have to be partakers of his nature, restored in order to represent him appropriately. And that's what God did through Christ. He made us partakers of his nature because of Christ who is in us. All right. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. What is our inheritance? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, the covenant people of God, Israel, had an inheritance that consisted of the land, the land of promise. And that land, uh, if you were in a, a family, a, a tribe and a clan and a family in Israel, your parcel of that land, your portion of that land was determined by the casting of lots and the drawing of lines and boundaries. Remember those words, portion, lines, and lots for a moment. But there was one tribe in Israel, the priestly tribe, the Levites, who received no allotment of land. They were those, they, they were the priests who represented God to the people and they represented the people to God. And they were a picture or a memorial of God's highest intention for His people. And what did God say to them about an inheritance? Well, in Numbers chapter 18 verse 20, God gave these instructions through Moses to Aaron and He said, Aaron was the, the founder, the father of the priestly Tribe. He says, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. And then look at what he says. 
I, God, am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. In Psalm 16, a psalm in which David, according to the New Testament, is speaking the words of Messiah prophetically, the words of Christ, he says, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. And then look at this. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage, my inheritance is beautiful to me. Isn't that cool? See, the, the division of the land, the inheritance of the physical land, that was just a metaphor. <laughs> Because the whole point of the land was God coming to dwell in the midst of his people so that they could have relationship and fellowship with him. But the real inheritance is God himself. In Psalm 73, another psalmist, Asaph, says essentially the same thing. He says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. Earthly inheritance doesn't mean anything to me. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 24, the prophet Jeremiah declares, Yahweh is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Paul says, we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And when he says heirs of God, he means exactly what he says. The down payment of our inheritance is a person, the Holy Spirit. And beloved, the rest of our inheritance is a person. Our destiny, the treasure that is laid up for us, for all eternity, is the perfection of love and unity and fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as if that were not enough, we get to share that inheritance together with each other, with all those who belong to God as fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. That's why in Psalm 16, that same psalm, we're... Messiah says, the Lord is my portion. The beginning of that psalm speaks of two things. It says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. I said to Yahweh, thou art my Lord, I have no good besides thee. So God is the first. And the very next breath says, as for the saints who are in the earth... They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. There's no contradiction between those two ideas. Because we are fellow heirs with Christ and we are together in Christ. And when Jesus prayed what he prayed the night before his death in John 17, those words of uh, talking about our unity with him and his unity with the Father, That defines who we are. It defines where we're headed. It defines what what heaven is. It defines for us every good thing and every perfect gift that has come to us from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. The last thing we're going to see this morning in verse 17 at the end is that the Spirit's witness that we are sons and heirs means that we will surely suffer with Christ. This gets shortchanged a lot these days <laughs> among uh, many preachers and teachers of the Bible. But Paul uh, does not mince words here. He says, we're children, we're heirs of God, and we are joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. The words, if indeed from a Greek word that could be translated since or seeing that. It's the exact same word that Paul used in Romans 3 verse 30 when he said, since indeed God is one. And there's no doubt about that. It's the word that he used in chapter 8 verse 9 when he says, the Spirit of God does indeed dwell 
within every believer. Paul's not presenting these powerful declarations as a test of his reader's identity. He's presenting them as an affirmation of his reader's identity as sons of God. But he's saying suffering is a necessary and inevitable part of our experience as sons and heirs. The servant is not greater than his master. If Jesus had to suffer grievously in order to lay hold of his inheritance, in order to be glorified, then the same is true of us. Everything of eternal value that is true of us is true because it is first true of him. We are righteous because he is righteous and we are in him. We will be raised from the dead because he was raised from the dead and we are in him. We are sons and heirs of God because he is the son and the heir of God and we are in him. And beloved, we will suffer with him because he suffered and we are in him. In John 15 verses 18 to 21, Jesus said to his disciples, and I don't have it up here, but if the world hates you, there it is, just the wrong verse number. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. The fact that eternal life is a free gift does not mean that it has no claim over us. We were bought out of slavery to sin to be willing slaves to God or even unwilling slaves to God. But he is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. We were bought out of slavery to sin so that we would deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow our master. Orv said last week, pointing at Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, that it was that because of his great love with which he loved us, God took us who were lost and dead in our sins, children of wrath, and he made us alive together with Christ by grace through faith. And he's pointed out that salvation is not of our doing at all. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so nobody has cause to boast. But then, verse 10 of Ephesians 2 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we who have been redeemed to walk in the works of Jesus Christ will participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. That's not a threat. That's a promise. In 1 Peter 4, Peter explains that suffering is part and parcel of the normal Christian life. It's cause for rejoicing. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I'm going to close with this. You know why I think Paul says in Romans 8:15 that we who have received the spirit of God cry out to him saying abba father i believe he was setting the stage for what he said in verse 17 about suffering in mark chapter 14 jesus and the disciples came to the garden of gethsemane and he said to his disciples sit here until i have prayed And he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. 
remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and he began to pray that if it were possible, this hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. Beloved, on that darkest of nights when Jesus cried out to his heavenly Father saying, Abba, Father, he wasn't some child sitting in his daddy's lap enjoying sweet fellowship. He was sweating drops of blood so that he could make you and me heirs of God and fellow heirs with him who suffered all things in order to accomplish his Father's will. For God to count us worthy to share in his sufferings is all glory. Loving Father, we thank you for the calling that you have given to us as adopted sons and heirs. We thank you that our inheritance is you. We thank you that, that the one in whom we have that inheritance is Christ himself, the true son of David and the true son of God. We thank you, Father, that we get to share in that inheritance together with all the saints, those who are your delight. And, Father, we thank you and we embrace the reality that to be heirs means that we will suffer. We will we will participate in the sufferings of Jesus Christ and we count it all glory. We count it a blessing. We count it a treasure. Because we know, Lord, that the outcome will be that we also will stand glorified in your presence. We thank you, Father, for all these things. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ that his name may be famous that he may be exalted. Amen.